welcome you to uh, this episode of Struggling Mystic Podcast. Uh, today I offer a brief reflection, depending on the length of time it might be a sermon, on uh, the lectionary passage for the third week of Lent, which is John chapter 2 verses 13 to 22. And I've labeled the reflection, Dead Stars, Dead Stars. So this is John's Gospel. Uh, the story of Jesus entering the temple, which is uh, the story of the lectionary passage. Jesus coming in and clearing out the temple precinct, uh, creating a whip. And uh, and in John's Gospel saying, it's supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a marketplace. Um, in a sense, John's Gospel, this is one of those places where John's Gospel is out of chronological sync with the rest of the Gospels. John being the only non-synoptic gospel. He doesn't follow the chronological pattern of Christ's life. His agenda is bigger and in my, in my, estim, my estimation deeper than that. But uh, yeah, so Jesus comes into the temple precinct, um, clears it, is clearly angry about what they've done with, uh, with the temple, uh, claims that the thing will be destroyed and will be raised again in three days, uh, alluding to the fact that he's now... Um, shifted the focus on the temple itself into himself, into him, his own person, and is alluding obviously to his resurrection, which is to come much later on. But you can imagine how heretical this would have seemed to the people at the time. Uh, try to imagine um, if we were uh, uninformed by the life of Christ, uh, what this would have seemed like to your average religious leader or anybody in Jerusalem at that time to have somebody come into the temple precinct and say these words. It actually took me all the way back uh, to an incident, must have been in the 90s, where uh, where Whitney Houston, of all people, I do believe it was Whitney Houston, like landed in, in Israel and uh, got out of a plane and in incredibly bombastic fashion, kind of threw her arms wide and said, this is my land. And I remember turning to Mary at the time and both of us thinking, you know, that, that would have come as, as news to both Jews and Palestinians. <laughs> <laughs> that this was her her land. I can imagine the same would have been for Jesus. My father's house, the, the average religious leader would have looked at him and thought, you know, who is this guy to be saying this kind of thing? Um, but, you know, we, we have the benefit of hindsight. We know the claims Jesus makes. We know the church that 2,000 years later that is built on the back of those claims. Um, and the question for us is maybe slightly different to that initial heretical one. And uh, the question for us might actually be this. What exactly is the offense? What what has Jesus um, seen here? What, what's he picked up on that has maddened him so much? Uh, important for us to keep in mind in John's gospel that this is no knee-jerk reaction. Jesus um, makes a whip. Uh, he takes his time. He enters what you might call full prophet mode. This isn't him just like the red mist descends, grabs the nearest whip and, and lets loose. No, this is a, a thought-out action on his part that he enacts on, this, on the public platform. Um, and so this happens in, in the temple area. We presume the court of the Gentiles. Some things we need to keep in mind that, um, that muddy the water slightly as we, we look at Jesus overturning the tables of the, of the money changers. Um, that actually sort of argues in favor of the work that they were doing. In some ways, the money changers were necessary. Um, they had to change. The, the imperial coin that carried the figure of the emperor had to uh, be 
traded in for a more temple-appropriate currency that was free of uh, kind of secular images and uh, what would have been considered idolatry, I imagine. Uh, also, pilgrims couldn't bring animals with them. I mean, you know, people were coming in from all over, uh, the, you know, from hundreds of kilometers away, walking in, you know, um, they couldn't carry that much with them. There's no way they could carry great distances, the sacrificial offerings they had to make, so they had to buy them um, or exchange the offerings they did bring for unblemished ones, which was necessary for the religious practice. Uh, so there was some good reasons for the the, the money changes to to be in um, to be doing the work that they were doing, but I think we, we can acknowledge that it is an uneasy relationship to hold in so such close proximity, faithful worship, and financial transaction. Two instances of this come to mind for me. Both of them, funnily enough, when we travelled Europe. The one was going to Paris and. Uh, a church in Montmartre where we went up and, you know, the church is obviously beautiful. Um, this one was sitting on top of a, a sort of a, a bit of a rise and you could see over a, a suburb of, of Paris from there. You could walk around and and uh, admire the architecture and, and read up on the story of, of this particular church. While we were doing that, in, in the middle there was a service being conducted, so it was a a few dozen people maybe gathered in the front pews and a, a priest sort of leading that service and we walked around. But there's also a machine there that I think you put in money and it would give you, if I recall correctly, a particular coin to remind you of you know being in this particular church. It was a keepsake, a touristy thing. But such a loud machine, it didn't matter where you walked in a fairly quiet sanctuary, all you heard was this ding, ding, as, as people pop, pop their money in and, and received their coin. And it had that sense of something that seemed a little inappropriate to what was the purpose of the building and what was actually unfolding at the time, which was this worship service. The other one that comes to mind is, in fact, being in St. Peter's Basilica and um, the Sistine Chapel as well, both places where, uh, you know, you're in the Sistine Chapel and uh, hundreds of tourists are crowded and everybody's looking up at Michelangelo's great works on the ceiling and there's just a babble of noise and every now and then one of the Italian guards would shout out, Silencio! Silencio! And things would quieten down for a second and then they would pick up uh, once again. Those are just two, indica two indications of being in a sort of a sacred space where clearly the current practice or use of that space was a little out of kilter with the initial design. You can only imagine what Michelangelo might have thought, uh, his own ideas of what this artwork would have meant uh, to see it now um, sort of just hundreds of tourists running through the place. Uh, and maybe the same for, for Montmartre as well. I imagine in any time you've ever used the phrase, uh, looking at something, you know, so-and-so would be rolling in their grave. <laughs> that, that phrase is an indicator that, you know, uh, things are out of step with, uh, with the created purpose of, of, of what is happening. Uh, things are now out of step that this really isn't what it was designed for. Um, so as Jesus enters the temple area, it might be good for us to recognize that our descent into wrong behavior, our, our loss of the original aim or goal, is not always intentional. C.S. Lewis offered that very famous idea about, uh, about sin. 
Uh, he uses a um, uh, familiar orthodox idea of, of hell. Uh, and he says, you know, indeed the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. Basically what C.S. Lewis is alluding to there is that we, we make these wrong turns unintentionally, you know, we aren't always, it's a lack of awareness as much of in, uh, as anything that leads us down these wrong paths. And in fairness, I think all organizations are like that. You can ask anybody who starts an organization, especially one that has begun with a very firm principle in mind that has a a real agenda, um, a solid purpose, whether positive or negative, but I suppose I'd be thinking particularly positive purposes, that's over time, that if think if you aren't aware, that becomes corrupted, and um, organizations, institutions lose their reason for being. They slowly morph away from their intended purpose, often arriving in a place that uh, directly contradicts sometimes its initial purpose. So there's a deep irony at play. So the faithful work, when we consider Jesus coming to the temple. Faithful work for you and I is often a work, uh, not necessarily of discovery, but of recovery, of excavation. We become archaeologists of tradition. We begin the difficult process of unlearning. We reverse engineer to find uh, what, what has gone wrong, what was the primary purpose. Some of the best people to listen to are those who go all the way back to primary source material. Uh, just off the top of my head, I think of one of my favorite writers or authors, someone like Marilyn Robinson, who uh, who writes just fabulous fiction. I mean, her latest book, if I can think what it is right now, it's on my shelf there. Um, oh, it's Jack. Oh, amazing book. But her more challenging work, in fact, more difficult to read, is her nonfiction work. And part of the difficulty is that she's an excavator. She goes back to primary source material. Her big issue, she's a, a, um, a Presbyterian, so she's um, sort of knee-deep in Calvinism. And she goes back to, read, to, to, re, to help us redefine what Calvinism actually was uh, by using primary source material. You may not necessarily agree, but at least uh, you can argue in a more faithful way to what the original founding mothers and fathers had in mind. Um, and you see this all the way through. You think about organizations and institutions, I would think particularly of the church institution. Uh, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, right now in influential parts of the world, um, there is this idea that to be a Christian means that you are anti-abortion and anti-gay. And the question when you go all the way back to Jesus is, well, where exactly did we come up with that particular definition? Because it certainly isn't woven into the gospel accounts of Christ. Was that there in the beginning? And you do your research, you realize, actually, I was just reading a book by a wonderful writer, a very challenging writer, a book called Untamed by Glennon Doyle. And she argues, I've heard this argued before, that in fact, this particular definition of what it means to be Christian, in inverted commas, goes back to um, the civil rights movement. And the idea that a particular part of the Christian church in the States had to find a new cause to rally around, to, uh, to, to get buy-in so that it could remain a very influential lobby within the USA. What were those issues? Um, those issues were abortion and homosexuality. 
And so right there, you have a rewriting of the script that happened in a moment in time. Come to the party late and you think, ah, oh, that's what it actually means. But yes, it doesn't track actually all the way back. And so the question really is, what's been lost here? What is the essence um, that is being lost of Christianity right now? And are asking that ex exact question. I was at a function not too long ago of a particular church. And, uh, and I was looking at, at how the religious leaders of our time were, were dolled up in their finery. There were robes and garments and stoles and, and mitres and, uh, and crucifixes. And uh, all the way down to a guy had a giant medallion uh, around his neck. And, you know, it, it just shouted excess. And it seems in our time, as uh, as forms of church die, and as we speak, the excesses of the professional class of religious leaders is an evidence inverse proportional relationship to the number of lay people present. This particular function, there were, it was an important function, but there weren't that many people there. But yet, here was this just this incredible sort of excess of of visible bling. And, uh, and and those occasions lead you to wonder, you know, where have we actually gone astray? Frederick Beekner has a fantastic quote. He says, there is no better proof for the existence of God than the way year after year he survives the way his professional friends treat him. <laughs> year after year he survives the way his professional friends uh, treat him. Um, so like with money changes, you know, the, the, the things that lead us astray to take us back to the C.S. Lewis quote aren't necessarily bad things. Uh, it's just a misstep. We just move a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further still, uh, away from essence. Tradition is not bad. It's just not essential. Buildings uh, for, for faith are not bad. They're just not essential. So as we see Jesus do this, this act um, in the temple, the, the question is, well, what is essence for us um, that are trying to build spiritual community in whatever form, shape that takes? Well, uh, I would argue, uh, and just off the top of my head, that, that, that essence is love. It is community. It is sharing. It is authenticity. It is humility. It is witness. It is the joint pursuit of truth. It is support. And, uh, and, and that's what it is in essence. But over time, like, uh, like I said, not to maybe drive home the point here, but that the weight shifts uh, on the axis, away from the essence, to other things, administering, um, meetings, maintenance. Even, dare I say it, uh, for those that have had quite a lot of experience in church, they become invested in conflict. People move away from essence and they move to a place where the, um, the kind of ego drive takes over. And of course, when we lose essence, we die. And parts of the church are dying, I think, for this very reason. I don't know where, uh, when I first heard that uh, the light we see from stars are, uh, is very often from stars that have actually died a long time ago. And what we are seeing as as um, as light travels through space is uh, is the, the the dying light of stars that have actually died already, 
Now, in researching that, that's not quite true. People say, well, that's a very seldom the case that that would be so, but it can be so. And this idea, I sometimes wonder, you know, if, when we've moved so far from essence, is it a case that, that what we're seeing now is just a residual twilight flicker of something that's actually died because it's lost its essence? It's like when you watch a blooming flower that has already been snipped from its stem. You're seeing the life of those petals and flower, but you know that the clock is ticking, that the life source has been cut off, that the essence is gone. The question is, can we recover essence? Uh, of course, that's true for community. I want to drive it right home to you and say, is that true for you personally as well? Mary Oliver has that wonderful phrase, you have one wild and, and precious life. Are you attending to your essence what were you created to do? Who were you created to be? Just yesterday, I was speaking to someone in a coffee shop. She's a barista. And, uh, you know, I go to that coffee shop almost on a daily basis, such as my addiction. And um, I get chatting to her, a young woman, and uh, I was saying to her, you know, she was saying to me, actually, she's studying. And I said, what are you studying? And she said, uh, art history. Uh, she's finished a master's in art history. She's now studying to become a primary school teacher. Uh, working um, as a barista in the coffee shop. And I, I chatted to her and I was really kind of encouraging. I said, I hope you're still drawing. You know, she's not, not into painting, but into drawing. And she actually was lectured in art history. She's a very interesting person. And I kind of acknowledged in that conversation that I myself had done, I've done arts degrees. And I say, you know, you slowly veer off, don't you? You know, from from the essence of who you are, that expression into something else. Uh, you know, I think it was Picasso who was asked uh, in the 70s. In fact, I think the quote came to light a couple of years after his passing. But, uh, but, um, but he, was, he was asked, you know, how do you become an artist? And his response is, well, every child is an artist. The problem is, how do you remain an artist uh, once you grow up? How do you remain an artist once you grow up? What would Jesus do in the temple of your life? He came in and he saw the lay of your, your inner land, your, the, the, um, what's it, the sanctum sanctorum of your, of your inner being. And, uh, and, and, and he saw the person you were created to be and, and then actually sort of witnessed for himself what's actually going on. Um, did God make you something and force of circumstance or quiet acquiescence took you to some other place? Uh, are you uh, injuring the divine purpose that was placed within you? What is your essence? What is the thing you're, you're crying out to do? And how can you even in a small way return to that? The, the action of Jesus in the temple um, sort of reminds us on all sorts of levels, you know, the, the divinity of Christ level, the um, corrupted religious practice level, I'm arguing quite strongly for the personal level, that the question is of huge import and is asked of us, how can we attend to our essence? This has been a uh, very short reflection from a struggling mystic. Thank you for listening in. Please join me the next time. I'm hoping to put these out every week on a Friday. Uh, but we'll see. <laughs> Not the first time I promised that. Attending to my own essence. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll chat soon. Bye for now.